Hello, this is your host, Donna Barr, and welcome to A Bazillion Ghost Stories. Does anybody really know a bazillion ghost stories? But then again, aren't all stories set in the past ghost stories? I started watching Ripper Street with uh, Matthew McFadden, which is a marvelous actor, um, on Hoopla, and then the library asked me not to use so much Hoopla. I wish I'd just buy all five seasons of uh, Ripper Street, and that way they could just pay for it once, have it in the system, and not have people repeatedly buying episodes of Ripper Street. But it's kind of interesting in that it has people getting distracted by Jack the Ripper while other crimes go on. And I uh, kind of promised in the Patreon post that I would, quote, solve the Jack the Ripper murders. But let me first give you a little story. And I don't know if I've done this one in detail or not, but uh, Dan used to work with the Seattle Sheraton as a security officer. And one night, one of the local pimps, and uh, let us use that word because that's who they are, this guy, his uh, big old you know, pimp mobile, his big old Cadillac, you know, showing off to impress the girls and the clients, um, and their terribly fragile little egos, uh, it, that thing broke down, um, because one of the, one of the wheels just fell off the car, because I guess they can't afford maintenance, so, uh, his girls got out of the back of the car, and they're, like, very, very torqued off at him, because he just humiliated them in front of everybody, including the Seattle Sheraton staff, who they deal with a lot because um, I'm not going to say how they treat uh, street girls versus call girls, but let's just say that the call girls and the street girls both would kind of tr trust the vice squad because they were the only ones they could go to in case there was real trouble. They were the only real allies that might help them not get killed because they're in a terrible situation no matter what. Nobody chooses that life. Um, <laughs> people saying that people choose to be trafficked as a prostitute are like the same people that are saying people choose to be LGBTQ. It's always the idea. You know, I guess they're raised in the church, so they make choices or something. I don't know. Anyway, off on a tangent there. Uh, the uh, girls are getting out of the car, and another pimp shows up in a working pimp mobile. And he basically scoops up all those girls. They they mine now, and Dan and his crew are laughing at this other guy who was so, so embarrassed. Um, remember what they say, men hate to be laughed at. <laughs> and uh, as they're getting the guy's car up on a big old carrier, and they're looking at that wheel, Dan says, well, ah, bad thing, but I guess the guy's nuts fell off. <laughs> and uh, everybody, the whole crew with the staff, uh, at the Sheraton, and the uh, people who were hauling the thing, and the other pimp, and all the girls were laughing their butts off except this guy, because I guess if you're a pimp, you don't want to be caught in public with your nuts falling off. So, since I promised to, quote, solve the Ripper murders, this isn't really so much a solution as asking if Scotland Yard ever even looked at another possible target as who might be the Ripper or Rippers, uh, those women were horribly mutilated. It almost looked like, well, 
you know, the person who was doing it was supposed to be, quote, down on whores, but we all got questions about those letters. And it was warnings and who might be involved in mutilating street prostitutes so they would not leave him or so that they would not come into his territory. Is this pimp wars? Did anybody even look at the men that were running these women and whether or not they were warning off competitors or warning women that they'd better stay with them? Did anybody even look at it? So I'm just asking, and I'd like to ask Scotland Yard, and I'd like to ask anybody who's involved in it or ever written anything at all about it, has anybody even looked at the pimps? You, you want to know how to get somebody to talk to you if you're a journalist or like I was a Jake Leg stringer for the Forks Forum. You know how you get these people to recite their entire lives? Keep repeating to them in the course of the interview that you're a journalist, that they're talking to a journalist, that anything they say can be used, and it won't stop them. It seems to whip them on like horses tell you more and more of their story. It's a magic line. If you ever have a reluctant witness, if you have a reluctant person, you tell them, no, no, don't tell me. It is even better than trying to fake them out with a fake story, saying that you killed so-and-so and you did this and that, and have them try to correct it. Get a journalist in there and have them say, you're talking to a journalist. And I'm not kidding you. Later on, they may be yelling their heads off about what went in the paper, but I've had witnesses sitting there during a story because uh, nobody pays any attention to Dan. <laughs> and he'll say, yeah, I heard him told you that. They said, you know, they said that information and you must have told them three times. You're talking to a journalist. So if you ever, ever want to be a podcaster or a blogger, because that's where it is now, that's who's going to do all the research. That's who's, those are the people that are putting things together and why the FBI listens to the morbid episodes every time they come on. Um, just tell me you're talking to a journalist. And uh, that's why up here in Clallam Bay, I know shit about people that's going to die with me because they only told me and I am not telling anybody else. They asked me to. They were much stricken by it. And I ain't going to run around telling other people. I know when not to write stuff and when to write stuff. And uh, I've still got people up in Nia Bay who want me to be their journalist. And I'm, well, they don't pay. And I don't want to get involved in all this mess that goes on all the time. Uh, there's a lot of things like tribal politics and local politics. Uh, well, I will tell you one thing. One group is uh, beginning to be looked at by the entire community for being anti-vaxxers and for getting people killed. People have been dying up here. On the one hand, those of us who got anti-vaxxed, and thank you very much for our fire department for working so hard with the hospital and the CDC to get everybody vaccinated. But we've had several people die up here because they didn't get vaccinated. And uh, my attitude is that anybody who didn't get vaccinated because they believe the 4chan racist stuff, and that is all racist because it's about whether, you know, superior white genes will give you an immunity, whereas being black or being indigenous 
they'll all die off. That's the hope. This is this all this Nazi stuff that Q Chan was repeating. And when I say Nazi, I mean NSDAP. Although using the word Nazi is funny because that's a nickname in Bavaria for a dork. And that's why the Nazis didn't use the word Nazi. They hated it because it meant they were a bunch of southern dorks. So if you call somebody a Nazi, maybe they have German relatives. And that's why they're really griped off about that. But uh, up here, we're beginning to have people turn around and look. And there's organizations up here that I never, I never reported to the state of Washington. But if the state of Washington finds out what they were doing during COVID and why they were doing it, uh, and if they keep up their nonsense, and they got a 4chaner in town now who uh, is dumb enough to write me long screeds in email, and I have screenshot them. I've had threats of lawsuits. I've had lies and calling me crazy. And I'm like, are you putting this down on, on an email, you moron? <laughs> putting it in an email when nothing on the internet is private. And she's the one that's going to blow the butt. They're going to have to tell her to shut the hell up because if not, they're going to lose major services up here because we got some major idiots up here who pulled some stuff, and they're probably keeping their heads down now because tides turn. It's a long worm that has no turning, and people have been dying. So, um, you know, we get the bad people scared of uh, being found out by the authorities. Maybe we'll have better behavior up here. You know, and uh, so, I don't know, I, I, I have a bit of chaos in me. Raven is my animal. I get to have him. I don't have to be quote-unquote New World Indigenous because Raven is not New World. He is circumpolar, and so being German and everything else in Europe, the Raven gets to be my animal too, and I def definitely feast on chaos. <laughs> Very often when I see it coming, I'll just sit back and get out my popcorn because I find it terribly amusing. Hey, look, I don't believe in souls. I don't believe in an afterlife. I believe this is heaven. Or this is hell, and it's up to you to make it that way. And if you're the one making it into hell, well, screw you. And sooner or later, that's going to come back on you, and we're going to hold it up to you and remember it, because we're all taking screenshots and photographs now. But uh, this, this watching the bad people start to realize what they've done, and they've got a mouth who is bonkers and running around town saying these things, and uh, they're just going to target themselves. I'm just, I'm sorry. This is better than a novel. <laughs> Someday I should write a novel about this place, except I don't think anybody will believe me. This is crazier than Ian Fleming and the dead body they supposedly used to get uh, the Germans misdirected. Which, I can see the, the British doing that. They use dead bodies a lot. <laughs> All of Europe used dead bodies a lot. And when that reminds me, the Germans are still going, Oh, we're such awful people. Yes, yes, but you at least... You know, you face what you did. You try to stop any more of this happening. What you want, need to do is turn around and the Americans and the British and the Dutch and everybody else and say, well, you colonized and tormented and enslaved and genocided everybody else. Why couldn't we do it to you? <laughs> and you want to see these other people's faces twist up and their eyeballs bug out when they realize that um, maybe the Nazis got their lessons from you because the Germans have a tendency to copy and so do the Japanese, for that matter. I'm not saying they didn't originate this stuff, but uh, certainly ran our playbooks. And uh, it's many, many, many years later. And they're the only ones, the only ones, the Germans are the only ones that seemed to be able to learn. And uh, I'm part German, so I guess I can learn. But in the meantime, uh, some other people are going to get a learning. And 
I'm just going to sit back and laugh because this is going to be funny. <laughs> Speaking of journalism, um, we were watching the Blake Mysteries the other day. Yeah, I spent a lot of time watching Mysteries and Things because I'm laying down resting my bad leg. You know, I'm going to be a cyborg one of these days when they put... Uh, when they put a new joint in, which is hilarious because the other day I was telling the young woman on the VA, don't get me started on the VA, um, that if when it, when it went in, I would be a cyborg. And she was horrified with the idea that my knees were going. And I says, hey, they're going to go on you too. And I, and I practically heard the gasp. <laughs> it's like, come on, guys, you're all going to die. Your parts are going to fail. You're going to pray to the Lord in heaven that it won't be your brain. And here's a hint about not getting Alzheimer's. Walk. Because your brain's connected to your body, and if you don't use it, it's going to start disconnecting. I'm not saying that's the only thing causing it. Anyway, back to what was I talking about? Australia. They had a nice scene of black swans. And the Australians, um, the aboriginals have stories about how the swans got that way, why they're black, and why when they open their wings, there is red Bright scarlet under the wings. And it has your usual tale about burning and wounding and, you know, coyote bringing fire to the people. And that's why they have, you know, black nose or whatever. But it, it's your usual story. But then I got to thinking, why? Why would they think the swans got changed? Why would they think that going from being white, as they describe them in these tales, why would they think that they went to black and red due to trauma? And then I realized, well, pfft, swans run all over the world. People all over the world see them. Africa, Europe, India, everybody sees white swans. And of course, the aboriginals of uh, Australia, with their, it has been said, 40,000 years of dream time stories, and that they remember these stories, or 10,000 years, or what? it's a long time. They got stories about the gigantic Komodo dragons, um, you know, calling them some other name. The, the bunyip might just be that thing, uh, that gigantic Komodo dragon. What is it? coming like two two tons, that thing, and eight giant camber, kangaroos and everything else? Anyway, those stories, they talk about white swans. And why would they not know white swans? They came from Africa. They would know what they looked like. And they got here, and it's like, would you look at the swans? They're black, and when they open their wings, there's bright red under there on their bodies and wings. Why is that? So if anybody wants any proof... Um, about how far back the Dreamtime stories go, you just look at them black swans and you ask why Aboriginals would tell you that originally swans were white. And here we have the movie review. Now, we've seen a lot of good stuff by uh, Ridley Scott and his company Scott Free which has always been his company. Um, but I'd like to suggest everybody go watch The Duelists. It is based on my favorite Joseph Conrad story, The Duel, um, which has got a wonderful tongue-in-cheek feel to it. And so does the movie, as well as being hor horrible. And, of course, Keith uh, Carradine puts on an amazing performance, but he comes from a movie family, and he can sword fight, and he can ride horses, he, because they do that. They, they have to learn extra things. But uh, Harvey Cartel didn't ride horses, and he had never fought with swords. And to watch him work with the swords, they're using actual sharp sabers. 
when he's fighting Carradine. And so these these bad things could happen with these things. And so when uh, I think it's Kaitel's saber slashes down the wall in the barn fight, those sparks are real. I mean, they could they could even do a little bit of camera work kind of back then to do sparks, but those sparks are real. And of course, the uh, fight master, you actually get to see William Hobbs, who is the fight master, uh, who did the fight master for Richard Lester and everybody else, and he's the fight master, who actually appears in the movie. But uh, Harvey Keitel's performance is amazing, especially during the horse riding scenes. Um, Carradine is up on, and, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think they're using uh, French thoroughbreds, which I don't know if they had thoroughbreds back then. Uh, you horse people would have to go back, but it looks like what they're using, and I can't swear this, it, they might have gone to the French reenactors who've got all the horses and the uniforms and everything else. Um, Ridley Scott paid, uh, what is it, $19,000 a piece or pounds or whatever for Kaitel's and Carradine's uniforms, but I'll bet you they had help from those reenactors because those people will thoroughly uh, help out in a movie, and they're perfectly happy to. It's just like the American Civil War reenactors. But they put Carradine in the charge, the last big charge, uh, the two characters running toward each other with sabers. Uh, Carradine's on a French thoroughbred that you can see obviously wants to charge because he's throwing his head around and trying to get off the bit, and it's like, let's go, let's go, let's go. And when that horse goes, he really goes. Now, they put Keitel on some kind of big, hard, looks like cold blood dressage horse. And you can see by Kaitel's body movements that somebody's been talking to him about how you have to control a horse with your body, um, especially a dressage horse. <laughs> that that bit is, you know, almost there just at a, as a last resort and a reminder because they control by the, the rest of the body and balance and thigh pressure. But they've got Kaitel up on this big strong, well-trained dressage horse, and uh, Keitel, who hadn't ridden, is doing an amazing job. And uh, those of you who have seen uh, Dinklage's um, Cyrano, and you really should, because for the first time they really do Cyrano right, because it's about a dwarf, and I swear to God, that's who it was written for, and the only person it makes sense for. But if you look at those winter scenes when they're in the trenches... Uh, you want to go back and see what Ridley Scott did with the winter scenes in Russia. They are amazing. They're wonderful. Um, those of you who know Alan Armstrong, Alan Armstrong as a big, you know, rough, ugly man today, and he is homely today, but he's in this movie, and he's a cutie back then. He really was. Uh, those great big eyes and long lashes really set him off. His his, he is not silver-backed up. His features have not roughened up as they do when you're older. But uh, he a handsome man in this. But they have some... Uh, and uh, Pete Postlewaite pay, plays a, um, a, uh, a barber in a silent role. I'm not talking about the major people like Albert Finney and people like that. I'm just talking about these little side roles. And uh, it is beautifully done. They didn't have a lot of money. And the sun cooperated. So they did a lot of found footage, and they, and they had an excellent cameraman. And uh, I'm not the only one who thinks that maybe Ridley Scott's The Duelists may be his best film. Beautifully acted, beautifully edited, beautifully photographed, an advantage taken of what they could get when they could get it. It's one of those movies with no money. 
And sometimes movies with no money are even better. There's one time I've been watching Spielberg and gone, oh, for God's sake, take his budget away from him. Because you have to think, and you have to edit, and you have to be quick on your feet. And you have to pay attention to the light and what people are doing and use ad-libs and accidents. And it's fresher and livelier. So if you like Ridley Scott and you want to see Harvey Cartel's first real performance and, you know, on screen and Keith Carradine really carrying it off and them getting the attitudes of the military right and what a staff officer would be and it just... You start you start wondering who Harvey Keitel's character really wants to kill because there's somebody he wants to kill that he can't get at. Maybe that person is dead. But there is more story behind this movie. And it's just, it is spare and perfect. It is a little cut gem. You have to see Ridley Scott's The Duelist. And there's also some wonderful commentary and interviews on the DVD if you can get it. So, The Duelists, enjoy. Would you like to be part of this podcast? You can go to anchor.fm slash Donna-Bar and you can leave me a voice message with your story that can become part of this podcast. If you would rather have me read it, send a PDF or PDFA, double spaced, larger type to donnabar01 at gmail.com. You can also become a patron at patreon.com slash donnabar. And finally, if you would like to know anything about what I've done in my life that has to do with my work, conventions, etc., go to donnabar.com. Hope to see you there. I will also put all this information in the program notes. A spooky...